adult podcast hosted by two young adults, there's a possibility of some adult language being used. If this might offend ears around you, be sure to pop in your headphones before listening to this episode. This is the Beyond the Studio podcast. Welcome to episode two. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller. And we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll share honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. So if this is your first time with us, go back to episode one and check out what we're doing here. And in episode three, she interviews me. This is Nicole, and today I'm going to be interviewing Amanda on her background, the kind of work that she makes, and uh, learn a little bit more about her career path. Uh, So Amanda, can you start out by just giving us a quick introduction to the kind of work that you're currently making? Yeah. So um, I am working as an illustrator, a soft sculptor, and a photographer and a printmaker. So I I like to kind of cover my bases and (laughs) make art in as many ways as possible. But mostly my work is the like soft sculpture, like fiber work. Um, Were you always making that kind of work or can you tell us just some of your earliest experiences as an artist um, or how you even got involved um, with making what you do now? Yeah. So um, growing up, I I guess I'll tell you where I'm from also. Um, so mm-hmm. I was born in Austin, Texas, grew up in South Florida, um, and I started just drawing a lot as a kid, um, and it was very like cartoony kind of work. And then as I started getting a little bit older and I got my first camera, I fell in love with photography and I really blame MySpace for that one because I was all about it <laughs> and I was like, how can I get really good top eight pictures? Uh, so I was constantly trying to come up with creative ways to make interesting photos of myself and my friends. And there's not a whole lot to do in South Florida if you're not like a total beach bum. So I was constantly trying to go on adventures with my friends and find new places to take photos and explore. So I did a lot of that. So you knew at that point that you wanted to pursue photography or pursue art um, as a career path? I knew I wanted to be an artist, but I wasn't sure in what capacity because I still loved drawing and doing more illustrative things kind of work. So when I Mm -hmm. first decided to go to art school, um, I went and I declared my major as an illustrator. And then maybe after like having two illustration classes, I realized that my style of work was not really conducive with the the training that they had. Um, It felt Hmm. very much like if you want to be doing comic books or at more like editorial work and I wanted to do mm-hmm. something kind of fine art but also sort of cutesy and I liked working with collage and cut paper work and I just wasn't sure how that was going to fit into the, the way that the department was lined up at the time mm. so I went back to photography and changed my major to that but then decided to kind of curate my time at college so that I was able to take classes that were teaching me a lot of different practical skills. So like I took a lot of letterpress and screen printing and book binding and paper making and uh, darkroom printing and studio lighting classes so that I could gain those skills Mm -hmm. and then apply them in a variety of different ways. Yeah, it sounds like you were really focused on process in college um, and learning a wide variety of skill sets within the arts. So were you still making the kind of work, um, the illustration or the fiber-based work that you are now on your own time or on the side um, behind the, the photography work that you were doing in school? 
I had never really considered doing sculptural work until I got to college. And one of the, like, you know, the first year of school is a foundation year. You get in all the basic classes, whether Mm -hmm. you work in those styles of art making or not. And so I had to take a sculpture class and I was really salty about it. Like I did not (laughs) want to be making sculptural work. And I was like, I work in 2D. Everything I do is 2D how the hell am I supposed to make something 3D and get away with it? So I was pretty upset. But then the teacher was like, sculpture doesn't have to mean you're working in plaster or metalworking or woodworking. She was like, you can bake it. You can sew it. You can find old objects and repurpose them and do something with that. And so I made a bunch of toys for that class. I made... This little, uh, this little bicycle out of fabric and wire, and I made a little, a little scuba guy and some little like plush toys for kids, and I really enjoyed sewing, but I just didn't pick it up again until after college. Like I incorporated a little bit of embroidery in some of my work, but like embroidering into photos or. Uh, into mm-hmm, a book mm-hmm. I was making, but I didn't ever think I was going to be working in that capacity. But then a friend of mine put together a gallery show soon after I graduated, and the theme of it was 10. And so I was trying to think of 10 things that I could make. And she had mentioned that most of the artists that were contributing were doing two dimensional work. And so I wanted to try to do something three dimensional. So I just kind of followed a train of inspiration and made 10 little wall-mounted mushrooms out of uh, recycled felt, and they got picked up by a store in Baltimore, and then a buyer from Anthropology saw it in that store, and then it became who I am as making just tons of (laughs) tiny mushrooms and succulents and cacti and flowers out of felt. So Amanda, can you tell us a little bit more about your business, Close Call Studio? Yeah, so I started making prints in college in some printmaking courses, and because I had to make editions of them, I decided to make something that I could sell to make it worthwhile having to make 50 of the exact same prints. I started selling them online, and I I think I was just selling them under my own name. And once that started picking up and I started making a little bit more money and developing a little bit more of a style, I decided to come up with a name for my brand or company. Um, And Close Call Studio, it took me forever to come up with the name, but I wanted to use something with alliteration um, since being Amanda Adams. And I figured, oh, if I ever get married, maybe I'll change my last name. But if I do, I'd like to still have something with alliteration to it. So that's why I was thinking close call. And it's something that's easy to remember. And it kind of rolls off the tongue. And it's already its own little phrase or saying. And so I wanted to find a way to incorporate that. And also my working style tends to be very last minute. It's a close call. I may or may not actually complete the project, but I swear (laughs) I always get it done, um, which helps to reduce the ever-present anxiety in my life about getting things done. But Close Call Studio, I just started selling my work fully under that, and it's It's been kind of a challenge to figure out whether or not I wanted to incorporate photography work or just do illustrative work, but I figured this brand represents everything that comes from me, so now all of my work, I just sell it and market it as Close Call Studio. So you'll see a lot of felt work, which is um, like sculptural, botanical stuff, and my prints, which tend to be sort of humor or pop culture based and then my photography work which is a lot of like natural landscapes but in general my work tends to have a pretty consistent theme that is 
generally very botanical or um, little critters and things like that. And so I think if I had never gone into art, I probably would have gone into like botany or entomology because I love plants and bugs, which is super apparent in my work. Like I was looking back through some books that I had made in college and almost all of them are themed around plants or bugs or birds or the process in which these things grow and develop. Um, so yeah, that's, that's close calls. That's amazing. Um, that's a great summary, I think, of uh, just the, the early stages of your career so far. So would you say that that show, you mentioned a friend of yours was putting together this gallery show with the theme of 10. Was that sort of the spark um, for you to start making these felted objects? Had you already been making them before then? Or did that really encourage you to start that new series of work? That was really what inspired me to do something totally different Um, because it was pretty soon after graduating college and this is comical, but um, my thesis in school, it was a photo series and the whole premise was about continuing to make work even when it's hard, even when it hurts, even when it's stressful and you don't feel like it, but just pressing on. And so I called that series, Please Continue. And It was just a massive installation of hundreds of photos that had this sort of um, cloud-like shape that went along the walls, and that burnt me out. (laughs) So I made this entire project to keep making work, and then I was exhausted afterwards. I didn't want to keep making work which I felt really defeated. So when I was asked to be in this show, I figured I'm going to make something completely different from anything I've ever done before. And maybe the pressure and the stress of art making will not be felt if I'm working with felt. Mm. (laughs) Um, And it worked. And now I'm back to doing some photography. It still is not at the same pace it was before, but I think working while in college and outside of college are completely different experiences. Mm -hmm. So I want to just go back for a minute and ask you whether this was in college or earlier on in high school. um, Do you remember the very first job that you had that was paid? As an artist or just in general? Just in general. Um... In like middle school and high school, I did a lot of babysitting, um, which probably most most people have gone through that. Um, but my first like actual job job that was paid was uh, it was at a pizza shop, um, and I was working the counter and. It was all just pizza to go or like quick pickups. Mm -hmm. So that was that job. And then I maybe lasted there for like five or six months. (laughs) And was this in high school or college? That was in college. Um, In high school, I I didn't get my driver's license for a very long time. Like not until after I'd already finished high school. And in South Florida, you can't really get anywhere without having a car. Mm -hmm. So I just worked, you know, with neighborhood families that I could babysit and walk to. Yeah. So when you participated in this show and when you started making the felted mushrooms, were you um, working any other jobs alongside that? And were you even thinking about that work in terms of starting a business at that point? Um, I had somewhat established a small business while I was in college. So I was making a lot of prints from photography classes as well as printmaking classes. And uh, if you've never taken a printmaking class, you typically make additions of your work. So you're Mm -hmm. not just making one print. That's a lot of work to put into just one print. So you end up making multiples and it's either something you continue to print or you just say limited edition of like 50 prints or whatever. So I made several editions of different prints from classes and I intentionally designed them for the purpose of reselling them. Mm. Um, and I, so I started selling them online. It 
it really started with uh, an X-Files block print that I had letterpressed. And I started selling those online through Etsy. And they sold okay. out pretty quickly. And then I started selling some of the felt mushrooms online. And I noticed that my paper goods... It's a little bit different now, but when I was starting out, my paper goods did incredibly well online. But if I was trying to sell them in person at like a craft show or a market, mm-hmm. they didn't do amazingly well. But then the felt work did not do very well online, but did incredibly well in person. And I think it was the tactility of mm. the little pieces that people just want to touch them and feel them and they see how cute and small they are and they're like, I got to have this in my house. I'm taking this with me. But then the prints, I think that sense of urgency in person is not there. And it's like, ah, if I ever want it, I can get it online. Hmm. So... Was the Etsy shop the first way that you started selling that work? And were you also thinking of that as uh, something that might eventually become a sustainable full-time business? Or I'm curious how you started finding those people. Um, and Etsy is such a platform for um, you know people who are looking to, to buy um, work and looking for crafted items. So did the, the client base that you have on there just start to build up organically? Um, in the beginning, I'm thinking. Yes, yes and no. Um, the nice thing about Etsy is it really generates its own traffic. So you don't have to do a ton of work sending people to your Etsy store. People Mm -hmm. go to Etsy for the purpose of finding something handmade by a small business owner and, then they search the type of product that they want. So like if I'm a huge X-Files fan and I want a really cool, unique X-Files print, I'm going to look it up on Etsy and then find, you know, pick out the one that I think fits my aesthetic the most. So Etsy does an incredible job doing that. So you don't really have to push it too hard as long as your work is documented well, you're using the right hashtags and, or not hashtags, I guess just product tags. Um, but in person or work in stores, cause I also have work that I sell. So I sell online through Etsy and a couple other different platforms. Um, and then I sell in person at markets and craft shows that I personally am the one there doing it. Mm-hmm. And then I also sell wholesale retail consignment through, like small boutiques across the country and the some of the work they found or some of the uh, stores they found me either through Instagram seeing my work online or seeing my work at a craft show but a lot mm-hmm. of it is also putting together a proper line sheet of your work and then sending it out to different stores that you think that your aesthetic matches. And it feels a lot like a job application mm-hmm. where you're just trying to not only sell them your work, but you kind of are selling them yourself too, saying like, I love your store. I think that my work would be so great in it. I could really see us having a good relationship. And I want to encourage you to take a look at my stuff and see if you think it's a good fit as well. So it, it's a lot of putting yourself out there and talking a good game. (laughs) Yeah. So those relationships um, where you were the one doing the outreach, how did you find those stores? Were you just searching online for boutiques that you thought would be a good fit? Um, Because it sounds like they're spread out all over the country now, which is really amazing. So um, in those instances, what kind of research are you doing? How do you find them? Um, I find a lot of them through Instagram, actually. Uh, Now most boutiques will have their own Instagram where they're posting the work that they have. Mm -hmm. So when I see a store online that I feel that my work would be a good fit in, that's when I kind of add them to my my list on my computer of stores to submit my work to. Mm -hmm. I've recently fallen in love with spreadsheets. So I've got like a spreadsheet of craft shows to submit my work to and a spreadsheet of stores to submit my work to. And I've been doing the same thing with like, you know, my finance documents and all that. So 
Yeah. Yeah, that's great that you have all those organizational strategies in place. So do most of these um, stores have, is this unusual to have, you know, artists and artisans reaching out to them in this way? Or is this sort of the common way of submitting your work somewhere? Are most of them pretty receptive to taking submissions? Honestly, I'm not totally sure. I, I think a lot of the the stores that I've gotten my work into, they sought me out. Um, either they saw my work in another store or at a craft mm-hmm. show or online or whatever. Um, but then some stores that I've submitted my work to, it's, like I said, it's similar with job applications. Mm-hmm. Some people don't ever get back to you. Some people will say, oh, thank you for applying or submitting, but we're not looking right now. Or... It's not the, our buying season right now. Um, and then sometimes they're like, hey, we love your work. We'd love to place an order. How do we do that? So then how do they do that? What's the next step from there? If someone gets back to you and is really excited about your work and they want to um, they want to include it, are they buying wholesale from you? Typically, stores will buy wholesale from me, but sometimes they will do it consignment style. So wholesale... For anyone that doesn't know, wholesale, they buy the products outright, whether they sell them or not, you get paid, and then they have your work, and then they mark it up to your retail pricing, and they get a deal because they're buying so many pieces up front, and then they sell them. Mm -hmm. And are you determining both of those price points, both the retail and the wholesale, when you um, send them to them? Yeah. So I, when I send them the, the line sheet that I use, it has pictures of the products, the dimensions for the products, and the materials used. Uh, if I have variations of those products, it will explain that as well. And then I have listed the wholesale price and then the recommended retail price. So mm, typically, okay. the way most people do it is wholesale is 50% of your retail pricing. Um, but then some stores will do consignment style where you only get paid when they sell your stuff. And a lot of times they'll send you a check on a monthly basis saying, okay, we sold these items. They'll give you a little, you know, breakdown of the products that sold. And then they'll give you a check for how much they made. And consignment, they take a lower percentage of your sales. Um, it can be anywhere from, 30 to 40% that they're getting. So mm-hmm. I love consignment because I know I'm making more money, but there's also no guarantee that things are going to actually sell or when they're going to sell. So mm-hmm. I end up getting a bunch of little checks every month from different stores saying like, oh, maybe you made $24 from our store or maybe you made $700 from this store. So it just totally right. varies. Um, which has been an interesting thing to kind of get to know. So I, I have mm-hmm. a, a love-hate relationship with both wholesale and consignment, but I think it's good to be willing to do both because you have a good balance that way. Right. So I want to go back to um, something you mentioned earlier, which is after the gallery show, somebody saw your work and put it in a store. Um, can you talk more about that? Or was that the first um, relationship that you had with selling your work through uh, through a store like that? Yeah. So I had my work up at the gallery. It was up for, a, I think, maybe a couple of weeks And at the gallery opening, I noticed that a few pieces had sold, and I was really excited because I was like, oh my goodness, I'm making money. This is great. Give me another drink because I just just earned it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, And then the owners of a store in Baltimore, they came up, and I kind of knew them a little bit uh, because they were friends of friends, but they were saying, you know, if you have leftover pieces at the end of the show, we would love to take them and sell them through our store. And I thought, man, this is perfect. They're not going to sell themselves sitting in my house, so I got to get them somewhere. And so they they sold those pieces, and while they were on display at the store, it's called Hunting Ground in Baltimore— it's wonderful if you like vintage and well curated goods. 
go there. Um, <laughs> little, little plug for my ladies. Um, but while they were there, a buyer from anthropology that had also attended the college that we went to, uh, they were at hunting ground just looking and they saw my work, asked for my contact information and sent me an email. When I first got the email, I thought, that's amazing. I well, my first reaction was I thought I unsubscribed for anthropology. Why do I keep getting these emails? And then I realized it was like personally <laughs> directed to me. And then I thought, why is someone spamming me? This is so specific, and this is worse than the like Nigerian prince that needs help getting home emails. <laughs> Yeah, because those art scams exist, which is really unfortunate. Yes. So I can see why you might go there initially. Yeah, so I was super wary of getting scammed, and then I just responded, and we talked back and forth a little bit, and then they wanted to do a line for anthropology from my designs. Initially, they were like, can you make a thousand units of five different designs? And I said, no, I certainly cannot. However, <laughs> I can sell you the designs for you to reproduce them. Um, and it was really incredible working with anthropology because they were very they were very adamant about making sure that I was giving them work that I was proud of and that I was comfortable with. Mm -hmm. So they they were able to use materials that I approved of, and I got the final you know good to go as far as the designs go. So I made the products by hand, shipped them to them, they reproduced them, and okay. then I got the you know the first uh, sample of each product, and I said yep, these look great. And then they were available online and they sold out. So it was a really incredible experience. And I learned a lot about contracts and negotiating mm -hmm. and how to make sure that I'm not getting screwed over at the end of the day. Not that I trusted who I was working with, especially knowing yeah, that like she had, she had gone to Micah as well, um, if I haven't mentioned Nicole and I both went to the Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. um, so when I say Micah, that's what I'm referring to. Uh, but we, I, I trusted her since she was also a Micah alumni. So I figured, you know what? I know where she comes from. She knows where I come from. So I trust that she's not trying to like pull a fast one on me. So did you have any experience um, putting together contracts or, you know, working on a large scale like this prior to that? Did you have any kind of contract or formal agreement with um, your friends at Hunting Ground? Uh, we didn't. Man, I probably should have. But I, I wasn't even giving them invoices or anything. I was just like dropping off products and saying like, OK, whatever sells, just you know, let me know. And then they would write me a check periodically. But I think because of the dynamic of our friendship, it was like very unofficial. I mean, for their end and my end, we were still like very legit with bookkeeping and all of that. But it was more relaxed. Mm -hmm. And I had no experience coming up with a contract. And I, that's something that I was really nervous about. I was like, I don't want to accidentally sell them my creative soul. Right. So so I had a friend that is a lawyer and she was able to okay. look over the contract and there were a few things that we had to change like the um the contact or the contract didn't have an end date for when they could stop or when they had to stop selling the products and it also didn't have a limit to how many products they could produce. So without hmm. that they could have sold the products forever, kept making more, and I never would have made any more money off of it. So I was able to... Oh, so you weren't getting royalties? It was more for the flat-out design, and then yeah. you were putting some limitations on you know, how, how many and how long they could yeah. use those? So I, um, and for those that don't know, when you get royalties, that means that you're getting a percentage of every single sale, um, and that works a lot with things that are mass produced or something like music, like royalties per download. But um, mm. I just set, or we were able to negotiate a set price based off of the number of items they were able to produce that I was comfortable with. So I was still mentally getting the percentage that I wanted. Um, okay. So I was able to negotiate my money up a little bit. I think I got myself like another $1,000 or two. 
And that's great. Just from knowing what you were going into and really understanding the the contract um, and then having somebody else to help work you through that. Yeah. I'm sure it was really helpful. Yeah. It made a huge difference and it really helped me to keep my peace of mind. I just tend to be a little bit naive when it comes to that sort of stuff. Like I just take people at their word. And it's really important when you are selling your work to make sure that your ass is covered in the contract. So if you don't have any contract experience, a lot of lawyers, um, especially lawyers working specifically with artists, or with artists will do um, like a pretty inexpensive or sometimes even free consultation where they'll help. Yeah. And I'll say that um, I know there's an organization called Maryland Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts um, that will do those kinds of sessions. And I'm not sure if they exist in other states, but I've also participated in those and I think they're really worthwhile. Yeah. So did that kind of change the way that you would then approach other stores, just having all of this knowledge through working with Anthro, going through these contracts, um, and then were you starting to develop some of your own? And um, what did you take from that into some of the next relationships that you were pursuing? With anthropology, I was obviously really excited because I'm a fan of anthropology. And I saw it as like mm-hmm. my dream store to have my work in, but it also gave me yeah. some credibility when reaching out to other stores and being able to say, mm, okay. close call studio as seen in anthropology. And that made me feel more confident in myself, but it also made me look more legitimate on paper. And those little things make such a big difference mm-hmm. in your business and your art practice. Because when you stop questioning yourself so much, I feel like you get the opportunity to really create some interesting work um, because you're not spending so much time in the self-doubt mode and more in the, man, I'm going to try this. This might be crazy, but it could be awesome. And I think that makes such a big difference. I'm not even sure if I just answered your question or went on a tangent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Um, I, I do think that's really important. And so I'm curious, were you already reaching out to other venues looking for um, places that you might be able to sell your work prior to that point? Or was it really um, hunting ground and then anthropology that sort of sparked um, the beginnings of that? And then from there on out, you were a little more proactive with how you were seeking it definitely out those relationships? It. Um, so the timeline, we'll say, okay. went to art college, was making work, selling very little of it, uh, and not my photography work, really. Um, then I did that gallery show, got picked up by Hunting Ground, got picked up by Anthropology, then... At that moment was when I was like, okay, this is this is not just me making art for fun and a little money on the side. Like this is becoming a business and I need to treat it as such. And I mm-hmm. didn't have very much business knowledge or really any business knowledge from college. And it could be just my personal experience in college or it could be a universal experience in college. But I learned from going to art school, how to make great work, how to talk about it, how to be critical of it and push myself and really have that momentum and drive. But I had no idea how to sell it and how to get it into stores or even into galleries. And it, Mm -hmm. so I ended up taking this, uh, this online business course uh, through Marie Forleo. I took her B-School course, and it's not cheap. It's like $2,000, and I was very scared to take that plunge, but I realized it was Mm -hmm. an investment in my business. So I think at the time, I was maybe only making like... I mean... uh, Outside of the anthropology contract, because that was like significantly more money than I had made on my art collectively up until that point. And 
So I really was mm-hmm. not very making very much money on my art, but I thought that I had the potential to make quite a bit of it. So I invested mm-hmm. in it and it really broke down how to view your business, how to push it to your ideal clientele and how to get everything looking incredibly professional and to also just be professional and have a business with a purpose. And through that, I realized that I didn't want to just make cool art, but I also wanted to make art that was sustainable and fair trade, like the, you know, the materials that I'm using and were recycled and not using any animal products and I was able to come up with more of a vision for my business. And the nice thing about that Mm -hmm. program that I think finalized it for me is that you are able to download the material and access this portal that you can continue to take the school over and over and over again every year. And I didn't even finish it the first time because there was so much work to do that I just completely fell off of their timeline. But I've revisited it several times since, and each time I take it, I get something new out of it, and I gain more knowledge. And now I have a very limited hours, part-time day job to kind of supplement my creative income, but really the bulk of my money is coming from my art making. And I don't think that that would have even been possible had I not made it such a point to pursue knowledge in business and in marketing. So I think that really changed the game for me. Yeah, that's amazing. And were you working other day jobs up until that point? Um, What kinds of other, uh, I guess, revenue streams did you have aside from um, your, your work and your Etsy business? And then when that really started to get going? Um, I've always had probably multiple day jobs going simultaneously. Um, So I've done some retail work in clothing stores, um, that pizza shop I mentioned. I've worked in Mm -hmm. several coffee shops. I, you may not know this from my art, but I'm a skilled barista. My latte art is on point. (laughs) I'm really good. (laughs) And, uh, I did a lot of, well, based off of your recommendation, a lot of dog walking and pet sitting. Um, yeah. I worked at the Apple store for a while, which uh, if you are creative, find a place like Apple to work because they give you benefits. There are a lot of other creative young people that work there. And for working part-time or was yeah, this a full-time was, day job? it was part-time, but it was, and it might just have been the store that I was at, but I was able to really pick up extra shifts if I needed to, and I could hand off shifts if I needed to. So it really worked around my art making schedule as well as my like craft show schedule, which takes a lot, pretty much most of my weekends during certain times of the year. Um, but it also was a little bit soul crushing working in a mall. So mm-hmm. keep that in mind. Uh, but I, that's interesting because it's like the epitome of retail, Oh, but I think there's something that maybe is a little just, you know, disillusioned about working on the other end of it. Maybe the same could be said for working in certain galleries if you're an artist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, but I think there are a couple different routes that artists take with day jobs where some artists out of school have only applied to creative work and then they have a creative day job and they will practice their own art on the side. And Mm -hmm. I had done some internships with positions like that. And then through that, I realized that I didn't really want to be doing creative work for anybody else like that. And Mm -hmm. because, I mean, if I wanted to, I probably could have worked my way up in you know, any different creative field, but Mm -hmm. I realized that I wanted a day job that was really flexible, that was easy for me to take time off if I needed to, that was okay money, okay hours, but really, once again, easy to pick up shifts and drop them if I needed to. Um, Mm -hmm. 
so I've I've always ended up taking jobs in like food service because it's pretty easy to like hop in and out of restaurants or bars or uh, coffee shops if you need to. So I can, you know, maybe do a week where I'm working like five doubles in a row to make a bunch of money and then take off the next three weeks and be able to just work on my business or go on a cool trip. So I also just like a day job that I can mentally kind of check out of that Mm -hmm. gets me on my feet talking to people, but doesn't require a lot of energy and thought in that way. Um, And that's just what works for me. I think different jobs are going to work well for different, different types of people. And that's just what I enjoy. Yeah. So can you talk about when and how you started getting involved with the craft shows? Yeah. I think the first art show that I did was actually at Micah. And it wasn't while I was at it, or it wasn't while I was a student, but every year in the holiday season, they do a huge market where they turn one of the buildings into like, you know, basement to top floor. All of it is a maker space. And they have a great way of setting it up where your work is available for sale for several days, but you don't have to be there all the time. You can work shifts where you're selling multiple people's work. And it was such an incredible and easy thing to do. Most shows are not like that at all, but they have a great system for it. And I ended up making so much more money than I thought I ever could in a matter of few a few days that I mm-hmm. like I made more money at that show than I had made at my day job the entire month. So I was like, okay, well, why am I not selling my work in person? Because this is clearly where <laughs> it's I gotta at. I got to do more of these. Yeah. So I, from there, if you have ever had your work at a craft show, you find that the more craft shows you do, the more craft shows you get invited to do. Because the people that are hosting mm. these shows go to other shows, find artists that they want to have in their show, and then they'll get your business card, send you an email. And through that, I've found amazing shows and I found horrible shows that I wish I had never done. But I learned. Oh, no. I've noticed that as far as I can tell, please correct me if I'm wrong, anybody, but I don't think there's a very good, there are really any good resources for good shows to apply to um, or just which ones. For finding them, you mean? Yeah. And when I try to do research, I will find just a wide variety of markets, most of which my work would make no sense in. So like you could look up, you know, like craft shows and it'll be like Grandma Smithers knitting circle and selling the work. (laughs) Grandma Smithers. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I just have been collecting and creating a spreadsheet and I hopefully we'll be able to put this out and make this available to listeners as well. But I'm trying to put together a resource that has a list of all the different shows. Well, not all of them because there are new ones popping up all the time, but a resource with show information. Yeah. I love that you're putting together your own database of these two, um, not only for yourself, but as something that you could potentially share with other artists. So I imagine that those just sort of build off of each other. You mentioned that a lot of times the founders of other craft shows will see your work and then invite you to the next one. It seems like those are also pretty pretty seasonal, potentially in the summer and then around the holidays. Um, or, or are they not? Or is it something you're doing year-round? I would say it's pretty seasonal. There are usually a few shows in the spring around like Valentine's Day, Mother's Day. There are a few shows in the summer, but then in late fall, early winter is when it really starts to ramp up. And then you have a show like sometimes multiple shows a week and it can be incredibly draining, but it can be so lucrative. (laughs) Yeah. So how are you keeping track of your inventory then, or even preparing for what you should bring? Does that just come by learning from experience as well? Like how many, um, you know, of a certain type of work you should be bringing with you? Or do you just have uh, sort of a huge stock of, of, you know, work and inventory to pull from at the beginning of that season? 
I don't usually keep a really big stock of inventory at home because my studio... So you're kind of making as you go? Yeah, my studio is at home. Uh, My husband and I share a room at the back of the apartment that one half is his studio, the other half is mine because he's a musician and audio engineer. And so my half is just a mess of fabric and it's it's a shit show. But I don't really have very much space to store inventory. So things that I do keep on hand are prints. Those are easy to store. Small paper goods. I make cat toys and ornaments. So those are also super easy to store, but I don't have like 50 mushrooms ready to go. It's just not realistic in my space. So when I know I have a show coming up, I prepare for that. And then anything left over from that can either be sold online or be available for the next show. But I definitely kind of make work specifically to go to shows. Yeah, that's great. So in terms of the income that you're bringing in with your work, and it sounds like the majority of your income is coming through your business, um, which is, I think, a huge achievement. And you're participating in craft shows, you're uh, selling your work online, as well as at um, physical store locations scattered throughout the country. Um, do you feel that all of those things kind of feed into one another? Are you looking to shift the percentage in any way so that you're exclusively selling your work in stores versus online? Or are there other you know, potential avenues that you would want to see your work in in the future? It sort of depends, I guess. I definitely think I'll always have my work available online, whether it's through Etsy or just available through my own website. But I love doing wholesale and retail and consignment work because the the work on my end, it ends once the product is created. Whereas Mm -hmm. at like a craft show, you come up with the idea, you design it, you make it, You come up with a way to display it and show it off, and then you hustle it in person. And that's a lot more labor-intensive and time-sucking. So I think I'll probably always be selling both in stores and online. I may not do craft shows anymore, or I may do just a couple craft shows a year, but craft shows are really good for money. (laughs) It's like having a garage sale. You just, everything must go. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. So just to wrap up um, with a few final questions, um, is there anything that we haven't touched on that you think is really important to know as a creative entrepreneur or any major things that you've learned along the way? Just anything else that you think would be important uh, to share about your own career path so far um, or some of the, the major things that you've learned as an artist? Two of the things that I think have been most impactful for my creative business are one, to start before you're ready. You are never going to feel fully ready or fully comfortable or fully prepared. So if you wait for that moment, it may never come. But if you get your work out there and just start going for it, you might learn a few things the hard way, but at least you're learning and at least you're getting your work out there. Like I right now am in the middle of redoing my website because my first website was garbage. But I had a website and now I'm going to have a much better one because I learned from having that first one what I actually need to have in the new one. And then the other thing I would recommend is be really, really specific with keeping track of your money. It's good to recognize, especially if you have multiple day jobs in addition to your creative work, just keep track of everywhere your money is coming from and how much it is and also how much money that you're spending to make your business or art making work. That way you just know, okay, this is how much it costs for me to do what I want to do. This is how much I need to make just to break even. And now I want to make more money off of it on top of that. And it helps you to recognize how you need to price your work as well. Mm. So yeah. Awesome. That's great advice. Thank you, Amanda, for sharing your career path so far, sharing more about the work um, that you make. I'm really excited to be kicking off our first episodes of Beyond the Studio by flipping the script on each other in this way. Uh, We've known each other for years now, but I feel like I learned a lot about your work behind the scenes and how you built up your creative business. 
um, which has been really cool. So thanks again for sharing uh, everything that you've learned. And we will put together some show notes because I know that you had mentioned um, a couple of things like Marie Forleo's B-School and uh, seeking out volunteer lawyers. So we'll try and include some links to those in the show notes at the end of the episode. So Amanda, where can people find you on the internet? Where can they see or even buy more of your work? So right now I have my work available for sale on Etsy and it's just under Close Call Studio. I think if you just Google me, my Etsy page comes up within the first couple hits. Um, But my website is closecallstudio.com. And right now I'm in the process of redoing my whole website. So hopefully by the time this airs, that will be live. If not, it will at least have a landing page to direct you on where to buy. But I also sell my work through a lot of different stores. And on my the website, it lists um, where you can buy them in person as well. And then I uh, share my work on Instagram. Um, I'm not on Facebook or Twitter. Um, maybe one day... I will be, but I'm not very good at managing multiple media platforms, so I just kind of stick with what I know, and Instagram is the easiest way to do it. So it's just at Close Call Studio, all one word, and it's studio as in singular, not plural, just like beyond the studio, which can be a little tricky to remember, especially when I'm organizing my files. Like I keep accidentally dropping things into my like close call studio folder that's meant for beyond the studio. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, I really set myself up on that one. That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the podcast over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to subscribe to our email list where we have all kinds of exclusive content that we only have available to our subscribers. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Cool.